Horror Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. Oh, what up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is... Is Caleb Hag, and with me as always, it's Prof Hoff, as Adam would say. Prof Hoff, what up? That what, made me laugh. What up, what's Hoff? Your, it, what's on your shirt, man? I don't know. It's like a semi truck. No, I think it's a Volkswagen van or something. Oh, I, it, from here it looks kind of like a semi. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, yeah. I should I should tell you that all of the clothes that I get are either given to me or handed down to me from someone who has, cool. you know grown out of them so anyway uh what up and shalom to everyone out there and what up and shalom to everybody in the chat room it looks like we have a little bit better of uh turnout today still not great (laughs) we're losing we're losing our our chat our our chat room slowly but surely uh hey we are happy that everyone's listening who's listening if you're joining us on youtube thanks for watching we appreciate it and uh, let's get all the formalities out of the way right here at the beginning. The Robin Caleb Show is brought to you by TorahResource.com. Go to TorahResource.com and find all sorts of free articles, videos. You can buy commentaries and books. And, uh, yeah, and, of course, Torah Resource provides radio, internet radio, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. Isn't that amazing? I can't believe we do that. Man, we're awesome. Anyway, so uh, yeah, that's uh, that's who produces this show. Ultimately, is uh, is Tora Resource, and uh, so yeah. Let's see here. I'm trying to find some. There we go. Okay, so uh, yeah, we're happy that you're listening to us. And uh, <laughs> what are you laughing at, Rob? <laughs> I just love. I love those ladies. That's just awesome. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, anyway, so uh, it's uh, it's another it's another week. We found another topic to talk about. Believe it or not, there was a there was one just sitting there waiting, just waiting for us. And it'll be an interesting interesting week. But before we get to that, how you doing, Hoff? What's up, man? Well, this has been a, a week. This is we're in official second week now of the fall quarter at Torah Resource Institute. Uh, really excited. Still, I'm a little bit on a learning curve because we changed our, uh, you know, some of the technology we use to interact with the students. We're using the, the GoToMeeting. Um, so a little learning curve there. But excited doing first-year Greek, second-year Greek, introduction to, you know, Judaism's in the first century, uh, theological research and writing. All these classes are going to be wonderful. I... I'm so excited to see the passion of the students involved in the, the the general forum. You know, we have the general forum where we have a weekly tour portion lesson that uh, recorded by different uh, of the instructors and staff, and and then people get to interact on the forum about it. And there's wow, I, it's just a blessing. And I, I my confidence is I'm encouraged. Uh, like my confidence goes up when I see such 
you know, hearts that are engaged in the word. They're anchored in one Torah and they're out there all across the country, Canada. We've got people from uh, someone in Japan, someone in uh, the Philippines, and that we're all these little lights that God is equipping and, and, and where he's put us to shine in, in those spaces and to be, be a, a beacon of truth. And I just am really encouraged by that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm taking uh, Gary Springer's course on pastoral counseling and spiritual care. Yeah. That's heavy there, man. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, you know. Necessary. Necessary. We've only gone one week. We've only been in one week. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 good. it's good so far. I'm, I'm encouraged so far. I have to admit, and I know that Gary's in the chat room and he's listening right now, so i got to be careful about what I say. I have to admit, pastoral counseling is probably right up there for me with philosophy. I really, really don't. I'm not. Uh, I'm not that interested in such a uh, in such a topic. However, I will say that uh, that the uh, spiritual care part of it has been very good, and. Uh, I, the class is the, the first week of the class was actually encouraging because it, it was a little bit different than I thought it was going to be, which has been good, which has been really good. So I'm actually very, I'm very excited. And, you know, uh, I, I think the name of the course might be a little misleading. So I'll, I'll keep everyone appraised of how the course is going. And, uh, yeah, so far so good. I'm actually, I'm actually very, you know, pleased. course names is tough. Yeah. Course yeah. names is tough. <laughs> <That's just> so, <laughs> I had I had the course uh, contemporary Judaisms and and one of the students who did great said, you know what this it really ended up being like a background of contemporary Judaisms. I'm like, you know, you're right. Yeah, that's right. And, and then it's so then the solution is well, okay. Now I need to create. Now that I have the backgrounds course, I have to create the actual contemporary course. But that's now another course we have to create, and we're all <laughs> we need more teachers. Pass. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, so. so let's talk. Let's talk. I don't know if this counts as mailbag. Um, we have two comments here. Actually, technically, we have three. Um, actually, should I open that up? Okay, so technically, we have three comments. Should we open up the mailbag for it? They're not. They weren't emails. They were uh, YouTube comments. I don't know. Um, okay, hang on just a sec. Let me get to it here real quick. Um, I'm sorry. I, this is I, I'm very so I'm I'm very discombobulated this morning. Actually, the funny thing is that I have notes for a lot of different things. Uh, this, however, this is sponta- This is spontaneous. This shows the spontaneity of our show. Um, you're gonna hear a little bit of an intro okay. here. Real so- quick. Sorry about that. Okay, so now. Um, let's open up the TR mailbag for it, or the Robin Caleb show mailbag for it. Why not? Mail time. Mail time. Mail time. Okay. So two things. First of all, uh, somebody named Henry leaves a comment. He says, and this is on our new, uh, this is on, uh, new, uh, when we responded to Zach Bauer from new to Toro. Okay. So he, uh, Zach Bauer was talking about, uh, whether or not, uh, 
we should people in general, not us. He wasn't talking about us, but whether or not people in general should be responding uh, not so favorably to people like Jonathan Kahn and others who predicted essentially that the that the end of uh, that Yom Kippur this year would hail in the end times and that all hell would break loose. CERN would, you know, the collider from CERN would open up some portal to hell and, you know, the demons would pop out and start rampaging on Earth. Wait, what's the, what is this genre? Is this like non-committal prophecy? Because I, I, there was someone contacted me and they said, you know what, we should not despise, it says in Thessalonians, don't despise prophecy. And I'm like, that's okay, not prophecy if someone, though. If someone stands up and says, thus saith the Lord, you know, blank. Like Monty Judah did. Then, but if you're if they're not willing to do that and they're just wanting to sell like inc- excitement and like tabloid kind of uh, prophecy speculations, you know, I just you know don't call that prophecy. Don't. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Okay, so this person and, and this is actually goes right down the vein of what you were saying. So this is from uh, from that show. He says, "Did Jonathan Kahn set an actual date for the end of the world?" When I've heard him speak, he seems uh, he's been careful to say we can't put God in a box, and we don't know the exact date that the world's going to end. Blah blah blah. Okay, so yes, yeah, Henry is correct. Jonathan Kahn has been very, very careful not to say. Now, there's a flip side to this, but he's been very careful not to say that he's a prophet or that he's prophesying or he's never said thus says the Lord. He's never even said the Lord told me, except for when he has said the Lord show uh, you know. He, he talks at the beginning of the Harbinger, and when he was talking about the Harbinger, he talked about uh, how uh, God basically appeared to him and said that he was going to write this book. Okay, so, uh, but, but uh, he has never claimed to be a prophet. On the flip side, there's two flip sides to this. Number one, other people have called him a prophet. In the new video that they're doing, uh, which is like a documentary on him, on Jonathan Kahn, they they equate they say that he's a prophet, and Jonathan Kahn has never said to anyone, "Don't call me a prophet," or "I'm not a prophet." Dude, if somebody was like, "And uh, now Caleb Hag, the prophet," I'd be like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 no, siree. Like, no, don't call me a prophet because I'm not a prophet, right?" And Jonathan Kahn has never done that. People are like, oh, the, the, you know, this man's a prophet of the Lord. And he's like, yeah. Like, he's, he's just like, hi, I'm John. You know, like, so can we say that that is, is, is that as good as calling himself a prophet? I think it almost is. And maybe not. Maybe I'm out of line here. But the reason why is because when, uh, when uh, Schneerson was around and everybody's like, he's the Messiah. Right. And and what does everybody say? Well, he never claimed to be the Messiah, but he never denied it when other people called him the Messiah. They equate that as just as bad as calling himself the Messiah. Right. So is it just as bad that Jonathan Kahn has never said to anybody, I'm not a prophet? I can tell you want to say something here, Rob, go for it. No. (laughs) <laughs> I was thinking about uh, the prophet Amos. We call him a prophet. He says, I am not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. Now, the Maybe other I... the other flip side of this, and to ans- answer Henry's question, no, he's never said that he prophesied, and, and and you're right. He never said we can put, you know, we, he's always said we can't put God in a box, blah, 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 blah. But he's, he specifically said there's going to be a great shaking and that this, this Shemitah year is going to bring, uh, you know, 
horrible uh, tragedy to the world. I mean, he did the non-committal prophecy. He's still a date setter. He's not a, he's not claiming to be a prophet and he's not but he's a date setter. And let me tell you something. Anyone who's a date setter, if you're if you're being if your congregation is being led by someone who's a date setter, watch yourself. That's all, I mean, I'm not saying leave, I'm not saying, you know, that person is necessarily a heretic or anything like that. All I'm saying is be very cautious. If you're in a congregation with a date setter, be very very cautious. Okay, let's go on to the next comment. This from our good friend, Ryan. Now, if you don't know, Ryan is a student. We talk about Ryan a lot. He helped me uh, in some research when I was writing my paper in response to 119 Ministries and the Copper Scroll Project. He's up there in uh, Canada at Trinity Western University. He uh, he is being uh, taught underneath uh, um, Marty, Dr. Marty Abeg, who's one of the leading uh, Dead Sea Scroll scholars in the world today. Uh, Ryan is not a slouch. He's uh, when when Ryan comments on our stuff, I listen, and the reason why is because I respect Ryan greatly and his opinions. He's turning. He's definitely turning into uh, a, a great scholar, and so I'm excited that there's someone who's uh, who holds to one Torah theology who is uh, who's doing the really hard work uh, of becoming uh, you know a, a, a juggernaut scholar. Uh, that's exciting to me. So he 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 wrote two comments on our uh, on our video about from last week about our review of uh, patterns in uh, patterns of evidence the Exodus and uh, so the second one he the second one he gets into uh, whether or not there was 400 years or 200 years in Egypt. Uh, uh, basically how that would work out. Okay. And it's quite long in depth and, uh, I've, I've tried to process it. I even looked at it with my dad. Uh, I think it's a little bit too heavy to bring up, not as an entire show project or uh, subject. So we're going to leave that one alone, but I will read his first comment. He says, I like the documentary. He's talking about patterns and patterns of evidence, the Exodus. I think the film did a great job overall in breaking down the complexities of the major issues in an easy to follow manner with the representatives views through interviews and with stunning visual reconstructions and uh, photographs. Okay. I agree that the production value was good. And as a video editor, I know that I'm a little bit more harsh on the, uh, editing process than than everyone else would be. So okay, fair enough. I think the film through interviews uh, and with some, okay, uh, I think the film makes a compelling case for there being patterns of evidence, except for the Ipua papyrus in the uh, in my opinion for core events dating to the Middle Kingdom, Middle Bronze Age, upon which uh, upon which the Joseph Exodus and conquest narratives were based. Okay, yeah, I agree, I, and I think that I. I think I stated that. I'm more for the Middle Bronze Age. I I believe in the 14... Sometime in between 1410 and 1490 is basically... Sometime in that period is where I'm placing the exodus of Egypt. And I'm not positive, but I think that Ryan is agreeing with that. I appreciate that, I appreciate that Mahoney, that's the guy who did the film, did not endorse Rolls and Bisman's new chronology model. Though he seems to favor it. I agree that he didn't just come straight out and say... That uh, that he endorsed Mahoney or uh, Roll rather that he endorsed Roll. However, I have to say I think that the whole uh, movie was essentially 
geared to make the audience follow Roll's uh, chronology. You have all this lead up. He's obviously the person who speaks the most uh, in the film, and he tends to be uh, he tends to come across as this well respected scholar in the Exodus, uh, com- you know, in the in the Egyptology community. Community, he's not. He's seen as kind of a, a nut job. He's not respected in the in the Egyptology community, and so this film puts him forward as such, and uh, may and and by the end of the film. You're kind of thinking to yourself, this guy's got it put together. He's figured it out. And then in the last six minutes, they really hit you with the, you know, with Roll's chronology. And oh my word, it works out perfectly if you just move the chronology of, of uh, you know, of all the pharaohs up 250 years, 350 years. So I, I kind of disagree here. Many will probably not like that Roll has a considerable amount of interview time, agreed, since Roll is on the fringe of, of Egyptology due to his cr- chronological revision. But to be fair, Roll is one of the few scholars, Bimzin is another, to propose a Middle Kingdom exodus, and so it only makes sense for Roll to be given a good chunk of film time. Okay, I, uh, maybe that's the case, but you know what? You have other, there was no time. There was no time given at all to Kenneth Kitchen or anyone who believes that in a in a uh, in the twelve hundreds Exodus, no time at all. And the people in the fourteen hundreds weren't given any chance to, to who believe that the the Exodus was during the Bronze Age, uh, the Middle Bronze Age, were basically given no ability to explain why or how they think that. Uh, that the exodus was during that time and uh, why why Roll was wrong. And that's the problems that I had with the film. Well, films, yeah, that's the thing. It's the same with that Blood Moon, Four Blood Moons. You have these voices, and what they do is they probably travel to these different people where they live, and then they set up an interview space. You know, they set up a little set with a chair and a plant in the background or whatever and some books. <laughs> and then yep. they interview them, ask them questions, and then... They go, you know, and they stitch these together. And then later they have the guy sitting, like shaking his head, like, yeah. And then they make it look like they're interacting. Look, I would. The best way would be to get these different uh, opinions in one room and have them. Even even more than that, even more than that. Look, I went to editing school. I know what it's like. I know how you, like, basically the editor's in control. You have the ability to tell the story you want to tell. And the point is, is that. I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like there was an agenda, and that agenda was given the time. You know, the interview that they did with everybody, I bet each interview was probably three to five hours. And some guys, they put in there, you know, there was another good scholar in there, and they put in maybe, they put in maybe a minute and a half of him. Are you telling now, me Hoffmeyer, that he, uh, James Hoffmeyer was... Hoffmeyer they, was in there, yeah. They gave him a little bit of time, not much. Anyway, so thank you, Ryan, for your uh, comments. I'm actually going to look at your uh, second comment much more in depth and try to uh, try to deal with that, maybe even just for my own personal study, but uh, maybe we'll bring it up. Okay, let's move on. It's been 20 minutes. We've already spent a significant amount of time. I don't know how far we're going to get with this. Uh, this will probably roll over into next week as well. The, the, if you've got your show notes, then you will notice... That I've got mine, Caleb. I put it down on. I put it down as. I have. I have. Paper notes today. That means something big. 
That means printed printed notes. Print button. That's right. Okay. Let's do this. This is how the whole thing came up. Okay. I will admit that I've been praying about this. How to deal with this. I've thought about writing a blog. I've thought about uh, making a video about this. Um, All sorts of different stuff. So here's what happened. I'm not going to tell you the, the details of the conversation. I contacted... Itzhak Shapira. If you don't know who Itzhak Shapira is, <clears throat> he wrote a book called Return of the Kosher Pig. He's uh, Israeli. He's a Sabra. He's from Israel. His first language is Hebrew. <clears throat> he uh, he speaks a lot. Uh, or you know, he's he's invited places to speak a lot. He speaks about his book Return of the Kosher Pig. What is Return of the Kosher Pig? As a as a general uh, overview, what I would say Return of the Kosher Pig is is that Itzhak Shapira, as a Jew raised in a Jewish home, a pro- professed to be a, an Orthodox Jew, then came to faith in the Messiah. I believe what the what the goal of Return of the Kosher Pig is is to help evangelize. Orthodox and Hasidic Jews. Here's the way that he does this. He, uh, He basically tries to show through rabbinic literature how the Messiah, according to rabbinic literature and according to Jewish thought process throughout the ages, was actually seen to be divine. I'm choosing my words very carefully here. Um, So basically what he's trying to do is he's trying to show that Israel, uh, that the Jewish people rather, not Israel, that the Jewish people rather, uh, since uh, before the first century and through the first century, uh, believed that the Messiah would come and that he would be divine. Okay. Okay. So I contacted Itzhak Shapira about something completely unrelated to his book. And um, through this interaction, one thing led to another. He said, well, you obviously haven't read my book, Return of the Kosher Pig. You should go read my book, Return of the Kosher Pig. And so uh, I looked in my father's library and lo and behold, there it was on the shelf, Return of the Kosher Pig. And here it is right now. Return of the Kosher Pig. The Divine Messiah in Jewish Thought by Itzhak Shapira. By Rabbi Itzhak Shapira. Now, here's here's the first thing that I want to say. I don't think that... um, uh, I, I don't even know which direction to go. Maybe we should just start into this. Uh, well, I have a question because yeah. I haven't—I don't have the book. I haven't read the book. I've never read or heard anything but what you've shared okay. uh, with me about uh, uh, Shapira. So I, I'm coming from an uninformed perspective. However, the title of the book—I I, wonder—it's just I'm like, okay, there's no such thing as a kosher pig. Obviously, I mean, obviously, it's a—it's a title designed to get people. To, to be memorable and to spark a, a, a question in one's mind. So there's no such thing uh, as a kosher pig, but yet the title's Return of the Kosher Pig, um, which means that there once was a kosher pig, 
that it's coming back or something like that. Anyway, so so yeah, okay. So he goes into strange. He goes into detail about what the kosher pig is. Basically, the kosher pig is the Jewish, uh, uh, essentially the the Jewish people, or or perhaps the Christian Jews. And to be honest with you, I haven't spent a whole lot of time in his explanation of what that is. Oh, okay. Basically, what he's saying is is that uh, he takes he takes the. Uh, uh, the pig as or the kosher pig from a pamphlet that he got from a uh, uh, Jewish missionary. It was in a track that said that the, the pig will return to Israel. That was like the dispersed Jews. Weird. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I don't get it either. I don't, you know, I think that it's, I, and that's why I, I don't get the whole concept or even why he would name his book that. But uh, Okay, that's a, neither here nor there. Go ahead and I didn't mean to derail the No, 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 you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. So, um I don't even know which uh, So so th- this show, this specific show might be uh more setting up kind of some of the ideas that uh are or the theology that goes behind Shapira writing this book. And it's and here's the thing is that I'm not just picking on Shapira. I've noticed this throughout uh, the past, I don't know, six to eight months. Now, first of all, I've had numerous people after this interaction with Shapiro, which happened probably back in July or so, June, July. Uh, I had him, I, I had numerous people come to me and say, have you ever read this book, Return of the Kosher Pig? Totally unrelated. They didn't know that I was talking to Shapiro or anything. They asked, you know, do you know anything about this book, Return of the Kosher Pig? Um, and so that's where this started to kind of snowball and, and I started to, uh, you know, really start to look at this. Shapira is not the only one. And actually, I kind of give Shapira a little bit of slack here in this issue. Maybe I shouldn't, but I do because he was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home. So I understand that he's coming from the idea of, hey, you know, this is where I was raised. What would have what would have sparked me thinking about these things? Okay, so he's he's coming at it from the idea of, uh, you know, I, I'm all my friends, all my relatives are Orthodox Jews, and uh, now let me try to reach them on their level. The, I think that's where he's coming from. Okay, and maybe to that respect, bravo. Okay, uh, there's some major, major issues though here. Here's the other thing that I've realized about this. Uh, this. Not even Shapira. There are other people who are doing this exact same thing. They're trying to reach the Jewish people on a level that is that's on the Jewish level. And what I mean by that is they're trying, they're attempting to uh, use affirm to affirm rabbinic tradition as it is. Well, that okay, okay. To start there, right? To to take now. That's if, if I'm tracking with you. Is that is that right or is that wrong? In other words, what I see, and if it sounds like what you're describing is what I've seen a lot of, is people trying to take rabbinic literature as as this fixed world that, if you just read it correctly, if you just knew how, if you just had the right key, you would see Yeshua all over the place inside of it. Absolutely. And, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to write books and preach and teach people how to read rabbinic literature. I'm not going to criticize rabbinic literature or offer uh, or suggest anything negative about it. I'm going to only say, oh, it's good. It's good. Let me just help you read it correctly. Read your Bible as interpreted by experts. I totally agree with you. Here's the thing, though, is that it goes even farther than that. Because here's where, and, and maybe this will really start to get us into it. Here's the mindset that I see from the, all these people have the same kind of mindset. 
God gave the authority to interpret the scriptures to the Jewish people, i.e. the rabbis. And I'm putting that in quotation marks, the quote rabbis. Our sages is something that you hear a lot within the, from these kind of teachers. Our sages say, I've said this before on this show, I'll say it again. If a messianic or a person who believes in Yeshua says, as our sages teach or our sages say, the next thing that should come after that is a quote from the apostolic scriptures, from the New Testament. It should not be something from the, the Talmud or the Mishnah or the Zohar. Our sages, the people that expand and illuminate the Torah correctly, are those who wrote the apostolic scriptures. Okay, so when you say... The scriptures of those who bore testimony to Yeshua's teachings, his death, his, the forgiveness of sins, they received the Ruach HaKodesh, um, and they were most of them martyred for yeah. that testimony. And we have the precious little treasure trove of the writings that they left for us, for our benefit, for our instruction. That's, that's the, the genealogy of our faith in Messiah stems from that word, from that preaching, from the Great Commission on not, not Zohar, not from Talmud. Yep. Uh, Rob's breaking up on me a little bit. Hang on just a sec. We'll try to get this. Con- <laughs> we'll try to get this connection better. Okay. So let's, uh, so here's, here's the question. Here's my question. When someone t- attempts to implant the Messiah into the Kabbalistic works, and that might even go farther. We'll say right now for the, for, for the sake of argument, Kabbalistic works, or when they try to interpret the Messiah through the Kabbalistic works, like the Zohar, is this the same gospel that Paul preached? That's my question. I say no. I say no as well. Now I'm going to give you a couple. Now I'm giving you the end of this, the end of this whole thing at the beginning. Okay. Now I'm not, I'm not right now saying Itzhak Shapira or any of these other people. We've met some other rabbis and quote unquote rabbis, uh, teachers within the Messianic movement who have who've basically uh, done this uh, kind of thing. What I'm saying is, is this the same gospel? And afterwards, then we're going to set up some some of the uh, some of what these kind of teachers are teaching. And uh, we'll let you decide for yourself. Listen first to what Paul teaches. In Galatians 1.9, he says, As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. There's some strong words. 2 Corinthians 11.4 says, For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, another Yeshua, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Okay. So with those scriptures in mind, now let's go and set this up a little bit. So one of the key, uh, one of the key things that these kind of teachers teach is that the Torah was, uh, the rabbis, the quote unquote rabbis were given the authority uh, by God to interpret the scriptures and make halakha. That is to make the rules to interpret the, the laws and tell us how to keep those laws, how we walk in the Torah. 
Let's listen to a clip. This is from Itzhak Shapiro. Which, which according to the Torah, was for Le- that was the Levite's job, was to teach Torah to Israel. Right. So, um, yes. And so Matthew... So there's a little bit of a supersessionism. What, and what was the place in Matthew that I grabbed? I put it in the show notes. So everybody's going to go to Matthew 23. 23. Yeah. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Now, I believe that we've talked about this before. What does it mean to seat themselves in the chair of Moses? I think it's where they read the Torah from every Shabbat. So the congregation hears the Torah read from the person sitting in the seat of Moses. Then he goes on. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe that is everything that they read from the Torah, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Let's listen to something that Itzhak Shapira uh, said. So this is uh, from a lecture that he gave. As Jews, we also know that we have to rely on other sources as we understand this this issue, this complex issue on the deep. Okay, so hang on just a sec. So he says that as Jews, we know that we have to rely on other sources. No, that's not true. That's what Jewish tradition tells you. And when did that start? I mean, I guess it was going on when? In in uh, Yeshua's time, right? I think that Yeshua was combating somewhat of the of the uh, rules of the of the leaders, right? What do you think, Rob? Yeah, I think I I just saw Gary's point. Gary made a point. I wonder if this is like using the Mormon text to preach the gospel. Ooh, it's yeah. like you're trying to. You know, it's an interesting problem. You know, to have. And maybe because, the, maybe what's going to be said is that is that uh, is that we're just trying to reach them on their own level. But I would. What does it cost? What is the cost? Well, what we're going to see what we're going to. I yeah. start using the Zohar to to provide the terminology that I'm going to try to explain the gospel with. All it does is reaffirm the Zohar as, a, as an authoritative text. I totally agree with you, but maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. So the first thing that I want to look at is this, the, that these kind of teachers, not just Itzhak Shapira, okay? I'm not just picking on him. The, the teachers who are going into uh, and trying to evangelize from the Orthodox Jews, what, what's the first thing that they're doing? They're saying that the rabbis have the authority. So they've taken away the idea of sola scriptura, which, by the way, people died for, to bring, you know, to, to they fought for that to, for that theology, rightly so, by the way. Uh, I fully affirm the idea of sola scriptura, that, that our authority is in the Bible, right? Okay. So uh, they take away this idea of sola scriptura and they put it back onto man. So let's go back to his actual prayer. Their sources, as we understand this, this issue, this complex issue on the deity of the, the Mashiach. In, um, in the Brita Hadasha, which we are not going to be using much today, it says this. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold on to the tradition that which taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. The to- okay, so hang on just a sec, right there. So he's going to take this, this passage from the Apostolic Scriptures. Hold on to you know what we taught you, and now he's going to put that back onto the rabbis. Right, he's going to redefine 
that word, take it out of the apostolic writings or Paul's letter, and he's going to use the word tradition in rabbinic. Say, see, it's the same thing. But it's not. But Caleb, it's the same word. <laughs> Parados, paradosis. But is from the, the as, okay, but from Sora, the, this is this is at the beginning Come of on. his this is at the beginning of his lecture. This is how he sets up his lecture. He does this in his book too. And the point is, is that okay? So listen to this. He says it is important to clarify. It's this the is, same word. Ah, <laughs> uh, this is on Whenever page. the Talmud talks about Messiah, it's talking about Messiah. <sighs> it's the same word. Well, okay. Well, how are you? How come we can't use? How come we can't just look at everywhere any book, any Jewish book that talks about Messiah? How come that can't be authoritative? I I actually pulled a clip from Instone Brewer's lecture that I gave to him. You know, he did a whole paper in Stone Brewer, Doctor Instone Brewer, who's the head librarian at uh, Cambridge. Uh, he did a, a full paper on the dozen or so times that uh, that Yeshua within the Talmud is is uh, taken out. And why did they take it out? They took it out because the Christians were burning the the Talmud uh, because of the inflammatory things said about Yeshua. You know that he would be boiled in. And oh, but this is what I heard. Oh, but that's really not. That's not really Yeshua. That's a different person that they're talking about. So that's this is the funny thing you'll hear. Like I've talked to to Jews that that, that that's what they say. Well, that's really that was talking about Yeshua of Nazareth. That's talking about a different uh, Yeshua. And so you can't say that. But when the Talmud talks about Messiah, boy, they're all over it, saying, oh, this is all talking about Yeshua. That's crazy. Yeah, well, there's, I mean, there's places in the Talmud that actually say that Yeshua will be, uh, will be boiled in excrement in hell for eternity. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you can say that's not, that's not, you know, that it's not talking about Yeshua. It clearly is. They're clearly trying to say that Yeshua is is a sorcerer and a heretic. In the ba- in the bodily, yeah, in the Babylonian Talmud. In the Babylonian that's, Talmud. Okay, so this is on page thirty. Now this is just reemphasizing Shapira's point. Okay, uh, so basically the, le- the lecture that I pulled from Shapira here, he he's lecturing on this book. He's basically giving a lecture of of it. This is how he puts it in the book. This is on page thirty two of Return of the Kosher Pig. Quote: Is it important to clarify? That the Peshat alone, and we're going to talk about, so in a few minutes, what I want to do is I want to, I know we've touched on these subjects before on this show, but I, I think it's uh, I think it's important to do so. I'm going to pick your brain a little bit, Rob, on the history of the Mishnah, the history of the Talmud, the history of the, and, and then also the Targums, because in the next clip that I have from Shapiro, we're going to talk about the, car, the Targums, okay? When they were, can we use them as historical sources, these kind of things? What role should they play in our uh, historical uh, investigations as messianics, as believers in Yeshua, how should they be used? And then also this whole idea of parties. We've talked about parties very shortly on this show before, but I think that we're going to get a little bit more in depth. I know that we're already running at what, 38 minutes now that we've already yeah. been on the air. That's okay. <laughs> it's okay. We'll maybe we'll go a little bit longer than normal today. Uh, so this is from Ian Shapiro's book, Page 32, it is important to clarify that the Peshat alone, we'll describe what that is here in a little bit, with the textual meaning, is sufficient to address the question of the nature of the Messiah. However, since our framework is a Jewish framework, it is important to look at all four layers with one assumption. We can't mix and match the four layers without agreeing that the Peshat will hold the foundational ground to our discussion. If we deviate from the Peshat, we can find many clues and secrets in the Hebrew Bible as one can point to a picture of Messiah from any verse of the Bible. Okay, now later he says, now keep that in mind, 
Then down just a little bit, he says, on the other hand, in order to get a true portrait of Messiah and his identity from a Jewish understanding, we must consider the entire Pardes framework, especially if we are to understand Yeshua as the Messiah. Can I, can you hit the ding button? (laughs) Can I? Of course I can. Okay. (laughs) From a Jewish understanding. Yeah. And now, and this is where. That's a straw man. There's no, there's, is there this monolithic, like Jewish understanding? No, that's, that's what he's trying to do is he's trying to say from the authoritative understanding that I am in, that I am going to tell you. And it's a Jewish one. But there's no one Jewish understanding. Um, that's unless he means, yeah. I mean, it, it it is words. It's word games. If you ask me, it's word games. Okay, so let's uh, let's that let, passage from Paul talking about the traditions which we gave you, handed over to you by mouth or by writing, um, and somehow stretching that into rabbinic oral Torah, and then saying, you know, from a Jewish understanding, these are pretty you know you can't build on this kind of thing okay let's not to build your house on i want to keep going with his sound clip because we've only gotten 30 seconds into it and there's another 30 seconds okay let me rewind here so now he's going to be talking about the oral oral torah here is what a letter the torah okay the oral tradition of our people are to be Use as an important understanding of how Jews view the issue of the Messiah. Yet we do not hold them in the same level of importance as the Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. At the same time, we are using them, and we will be using them, to see what Jews, what Jewish people, what the sages, what Chazal thought about this Jewish Messiah. Who he will be, and so forth. Okay, so there's a lot pause, of pause, pause. Lo- yeah. Wait a minute. It's, wait a minute. it's no. over. Oh, they can't. They were preaching Yeshua. Yeshua's disciples were preaching him to Jews who were no any less Jewish than Shapira. Well, but here's here's <laughs> the know? here's and the other were, point. They Here. were they, there Here. were Jews in Jerusalem, you know, that were were probably a little more learned in in first century Jewish world than Shapira. And they rejected Yeshua, right? I mean, so it wasn't a matter of, of the apostles uh, not knowing how to, to uh, explain themselves. It's not like, oh, I got to just, let me see. I got to find out their terminology so I can change it and modify the gospel so I can make sure that the Jewish understanding is coming across here. That's what Matthew's worried about when he's writing the gospel. <laughs> That's what John's worried about when he's writing his gospel. It's, okay, I want to convey that now this is the Jewish understanding for you Jews and I'm so I'm going to use but, but it's more what than our sages say it's no more, that's not that it's it's a dream it's romance they're 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 caught up in a rom a romance <clears throat> or drunkenness it's more than that though Rob listen to this again now I'm going to stop at this time view the issue of the Messiah yet we do not hold them in the same level of importance as the Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. At the same time, we are using them, and we will be using them to see what Jews, what Jewish people, what the sages, what Chazal thought about this Jewish... What Jewish people? He is well, now, he, he's yeah. now lumping, he's now lumping 2,000 years of Judaism's 
from Yeshua all the way until now. And he's compacting those all into... And all of that predicated on the rejection of the gospel, uh, uh, that Yeshua was Messiah. Exactly. Right? And not only that, That's but... why they kept looking for a new Messiah. Like, Bar Kokhba was going to be a Messiah. And the, the Jews... In Mid- Middle, Age, Middle Ages, they thought there was Messiah. Sh- uh, you know, they thought Shabbatai Tzvi was going to be, be a Messiah. Look at the, look at the, look at the, the, look at the, the Jews in the 1400s. What's happening in the 1400s? Come on, people. Uh, we've talked about this kind of stuff before. What's happening in the 1400s? We have the rise of mysticism in the 1300s. The Zohar is written. We have all these things. And by the time the 1400s come, you have this huge influx. Two-thirds of European Jewry now is holding to Jewish mysticism. <laughs> i got to share someone's quote. Iconoclast. Had the apostles only used oral Torah, it all would have worked out. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so, but hang on. The, the <laughs> question is, did Judaism look different in the 1400s? The face of European Jewry. Yes, did, and not only that, but you also had Jews, diaspora all over the world. You had Jews yeah, in, exactly. in Af- Africa, Middle East. It, we, you can't clump it all into one group. You've got different groups with different... Uh, traditions and different ways of arguing and, and now you're right he's looking back and he's trying to make that there's this the jewish understanding the jewish people have an understanding of messiah and and we can learn about yeshua by looking at that no you're going to see what 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 is the result of the people who've rejected yeshua have cultivated by now i don't mean because not all jews are of the same opinion in anything so you can't you can't, we can't group people together and yeah, attribute to them. It's funny that you, it's funny that you say that, Gary, because I think it's funny that these teachers try to make it act. They try to act like Judaism is a unified front on everything. Oh, Judaism teaches. Oh, the rabbis teach. Oh, our our sages say. No Jew has ever agreed with another Jew in Judaism ever. There's never been uh, like a coherent like agreement across the board in Judaism. Never. That's like the joke about Judaism. Why is it a joke? Because it's true. Okay. So, um, so he tries to, he tries to set up Pardes, uh, at some point. And what is Pardes? Should we, let's get, let's, well, you know, Jay Harris argued that, uh, he's a Jewish scholar of Jewish history, you know, in, in the, how do we know this book? He talked. He says Pardis is basically a response to what some Christians do were doing in the, you know, late antiquity with different levels of meaning and stuff like that. And they just came up with their own version of them. It's it's not it's not a a pattern of uh, hermeneutic that is divinely inspired. Okay, hang on, like hang on, hang on, just a sec. We need to we need to step back here. This this uh, could t- turn into two or three shows because this is a very important topic in my opinion. And it's one that should not be rushed through. We need to <laughs> tell the joke, Caleb. Uh, okay. Uh, anyway, uh, so the reason that, that uh, we bring up Pardes now is because Pardes is a very important uh, key to, to Shapira and other uh, teachers in their looking at who the Messiah is and how to interpret the scriptures. What is Pardes? Well, let's go back to a clip that we pulled uh, several weeks ago from the 119 Ministries. 
Within the parameters of proper biblical hermeneutics, there are four levels of understanding one can implement to glean from the Torah. Yeshua and his disciples demonstrated all four levels of exegesis interpretation throughout the Brit Hadashah. We must be careful to operate within these parameters. These levels of interpretation are not expressly mentioned directly, but in realized as consistent patterns in the writings, prophets, and Brit Hadashah. The first is Peshat. Okay, so I stopped it there because yeah, this is just not, such such nonsense, such nonsense. So pardes, uh, uh, it comes from it comes from the word paradise in Hebrew, um, and there's basically what they're saying is that there's four levels of understanding. There's but there's peshat, remez, derash, and sod. So what what does this mean? Basically, what you're going to do is you're going to have the level meaning. That's the peshat. Okay, that that's the basic meaning. Now. Uh, people are going to argue that this goes all the way back to Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Ishmael. Because what Rabbi Akiva, this is back in the third century, what Rabbi Akiva argued was that there was all this mystical meanings, all these different mystical meanings. Uh, and that, no, uh, Rabbi Ishmael said, no, there's only one meaning. The Torah says that it's not up in heaven that you have to go get it or down in the sea that you have to, you know, but it's in your heart and on your lips. And so they had this uh, this huge debate. The idea that they were debating over pardes is uh, nonsense. It's yeah, total were. nonsense. Um, so basically, s- these four different levels, by the time you get to sowed, sowed is the mystical meaning. And what is pardes? What are they trying to do? What were the rabbis really trying to do with pardes? They were trying to be able to interpret the scriptures however they wanted to. I'm sorry to put it so bluntly, but that's exactly what they were doing. This from my father's book. Because whenever you challenge somebody, they say, oh, well, I'm not at the Remez level. I'm at, I'm at the, the Drash level. Yeah, I'm at the Sod level, man. <laughs> you just don't, you just, you're just not listening correctly. Man, if you don't live in Colorado <laughs> or Washington, you can't get the Sod level. Okay, anyway, so here's, um, here's from my father's uh, book, uh, uh, Interpreting the Bible. This is on page 42. He says, this system, that is uh, pardes, of hermeneutics or levels of meaning became well known among the Kabbalists in the 13th century. The earliest enumeration of the four levels of pardes is in the Sefer HaZohar, attributed by the scholars to Moses ben Shem Tov de Leon, who lived in Guadalajara, Castile, Spain, until 1290 and after wandering a while died in 1305. The Sefer HaZohar, or a Book of Splendor, is a pseudepigraphic work that claims to quote scholars of the period of the Mishnah, even though that is totally not true. Later, on page 43, in somewhat of a conclusion of this section, my father states this, It is clear, then, that the hermeneutical system known by the acronym Pardes was a late system of mystical interpretation developed by the Kabbalists of the 13th century, and was unknown and unused before that time. The fact that the words Peshat and Raz were used by earlier Jewish in- interpreters a- at Qumran should not be confused with the later Shema known as Pardes, for these terms were not used as the first two levels in a four-level hermeneutic. It is therefore grossly anachronistic to posit that the system of, of interpretation known by the acronym Pardes existed in early Judaism's. And even worse, to read it back into the apostolic era. Those who attempt to do so show themselves willfully ignorant of the history of Jewish exegesis. That's what I mean by romanticism. Laying the They're smack caught down. up into a emotional uh, adventure and uh, enchantment. It's like this enchantment, and it's not 
grounded in in historical grammatical uh, reading of text. And so it's it's so imaginative they can just take off and fly away with their, you know. And that's you know that's what happened. That's where we get the Quran. It's the same kind of thing. It's like taking these traditions, these stories, and this real imaginative respinning. I think uh, Andre is the only person who got my joke. <laughs> uh, anyway, okay. Um, so let's move on. Let's move on then. Um, so we know that the date and the origin of, of Pardes, the, interpret- the hermeneutical system of Pardes, was sometime in the 13th century. And that uh, it was basically uh, – it was conjured up by the uh, Kabbalists. And I read um, – actually, maybe it was in my father's uh, work here. He he gives evidence that the Christians actually had a three- or four-level interpretation. Uh, the mystics, the Christian mystics had this kind of interpretation before the before the Jews did. And that basically – Yeah, yeah that's, that, that seems to be what happened. Okay. So, um, let's go to another sound clip. Somebody said that they just lost sound. I want to make sure that uh, that's the only person. One. Okay. Uh, so, here we go. Um, this is, uh, it's actually Shapira again. And let's listen to what he has to say. This is the 21st century understanding. But we must, as we examine who the Messiah is, go back to the time of the first century, the time of the Tanaim, or the time of the Amorim, or the time of the Geonim. Those are different eras in Jewish history. And with every era of Jewish history, different thoughts and ideas, who is the Messiah, came forward. Okay? So it is important to us today, as we look, look and examine it, not to look at that only through the eyes of the 21st century, but going back to the first century and second century to look specifically at what we call the Targumim. One of the Targumim that we will be using today is a Targum that called Targum Yonatan, that is written in Aramaic because Hebrew was not a common language. What and how the Targum was used to translate some of the, uh, some of the scriptures into Aramaic by our own Jewish people. Another Targum that is even used up to today in the synagogues, in the or- Orthodox synagogues, is called the Targum Onkelos. Onkelos, surprisingly, was not Jewish, <coughs> yet his Targum is called as Musmach. It's, it's a certified Targum that is used even up to today in the synagogue. Okay, so uh, here's, here's what's very interesting about this clip to me. Now, we're going to talk about the history and the dating of these texts that he's going to use, but what's very mm. interesting to me is that he says we need to go back to the first century okay, to understand these things. First and second century, he throws in second century in there as well. He goes then to Targums. Now he cites Targum Onkelos, uh, and what was the other Targum? He uh, Jonathan. Jonathan. Yeah, Jonathan. Both of these are dated what to the third century, fourth century. Yeah, they're late. I think Targum Jonathan actually has some hints at Islam. I think, if I remember right. Um, the point is, yeah, they're, the, they're, the they're point post, is that, that they're late. We would say they're post-Christian. And he's he's uh, he's now going to go to these uh, these targums, and he's also going to use uh, what the Mishnah, the Talmud, and eventually he's going to use the Zohar as well, which doesn't come on to the scene until uh, the the 14th century. 
Okay, do you think it's possible? Okay, imagine this. That is there any merit at all to his effort? Yes. Okay, let's talk about let because it might sound people think, oh, we think that this guy's full of hot air and that that you know, it sounds like he's a a brother. It sounds like he's not he's he's not denying the deity of Yeshua. At least it sounds like to me. No, like he's strong. He's okay. Wait, hang on. I haven't read the book, uh, and so it's like, what are the merits? It, I'd like to at least spend some time talking about the merits of what he's trying to do. Yeah. Uh, so 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 uh, it's not. And and once again, I'm using Itzhak Shapiro because uh, he's he wrote a book about it, and because he is all over YouTube, and it's easy to pull clips from him. However, this is not just uh, this is not just Itzhak Shapiro who's doing this. There's you know we had a guy at the at a conference that we were at recently who's doing the exact same thing. Here's the good that they're trying to do. Here's the good that they're trying to do. These kind of teachers are attempting, with a right heart, to uh, t- to reach the Jewish people. The, the religious Jewish people on a level that they will understand. That's what they're trying to do. For that, I applaud them. And that's no different than the general missionary aim of to go to all nations. Exactly. Right? Because you, you, at, with every nation, they've gone, they've had to translate. But what we learn, here's what we learn from all the history of going to the nations, is that it's a discipleship that starts and that the nations, the system that the nations had before the gospel came in could not be affirmed as it was. It had to change. And so the difficulty, the unique difficulty in missionizing to Jews who uh, have, who adhere to oral Torah as, as a official or sacred tradition is at some point we get to the line where Yeshua says, that he, talks, he makes, we are to discern between the traditions and the word of God. Well, it's beyond that, though. Hang on just a sec. It's beyond that. Because What's your favorite phrase to me today, Caleb? You said that, like, admit. it's beyond that. Well, that's because what, okay. I, what I... I'm sorry. That's It's because what I think is going on is that it's not just the traditions of men. Some of these books that are used within, within uh, this evangelism effort are Jewish mysticism, i.e. the Zohar, which I think has... Uh, Ties to the occult. Okay, so okay, I see what you mean. So it's not we're, we're not just dealing. In, well, that still would be tradition of man. It's invented if it's idolatrous, if it's you know reincarnation or okay. But let uh, me ask you this. Let me ask you this. A person, magic, a person, astrology. A person goes to a, per, a person goes to uh, India and is trying to evangelize the Hindus. They take their books and they say, "Hey, look, Krishna is the same as G- as Jesus." And let me show you how that's that happens through your books. What's the difference between that person and uh, what these what some of these evangelists are doing to the Jews? My idea is that the difference is is that people have a romanticism, as you've said, they have a romanticism with quote unquote Jewish literature, and so they don't think that there's anything wrong with it. Even though, in my opinion, these people are change are twisting the gospel. Now, granted, I don't think that Itzhak Shapira is willfully saying, ha-ha, I'm going to twist the gospel. I don't think that's what he's doing. In fact, I think that he, with a right heart 
and with a true conscience is going into this saying, I'm trying to help my brothers and sisters uh, in the Jewish faith come out of that into the Messiah. Okay, wait a minute, though. Is he saying come out of that? Or is he saying you can be where you are now? Aha, good point. And you can just have Yeshua and, and then you'll be complete and you just keep doing it, doing what you're doing. Um, you know, that's, and I don't know, like I said, I don't know what the thought is on that. Is it affirming oral Torah as it is? Because, you know, he said we don't hold the oral Torah up as we do with the talk. But I'm sorry, the, the modern Orthodox position is that oral Torah is the capital W, word of God. The halakha yeah. is the word of God. These and these are the words of the living God. And so, the, if and that's what the, the Mishnah says, these and these are the words of the living God. So here's the question. If the Tanakh is the word of God, and the, the rabbinic testimony of itself is that the words of the sages are the word of God. At what point, at what position is Shapiro standing where he's telling us that, yes, okay, but it's not the same level of word of God. So now all of a sudden there's levels of word, word of God. I, I'm confused in, in what he's trying to say there. Um, he wants to use oral Torah writings to explain who you, sh- to explain word of God, which is the apostolic writings. Here's the here's the other point, Rob, is that you know the word the the gospel is going to be offensive to people. Right. That's the, what I liked about uh, Audrey's point. It's like if we if we had only used the oral Torah, you know, they would have accepted Yeshua. Uh, yeah. It's it's. Wait a minute. What about the, where is the offense? And not only that, but the the prophecies clearly say that the that the Jewish people reject the Messiah as a whole. So, you know, I don't, I don't think Shapiro's book is all of a sudden there's going to be this mass, you know, maybe there will be, but I don't think that, the, I don't think, I don't see Shapiro's book as just as you said, him telling people to turn away from these things. If his book bears fruit, I, I my hunch would be that the people who, the, any Jewish people who have Orthodox background, they're going to be similar to him. They're going to already have heard the gospel. They probably went to a, a state college where there was a religion course, you know, where he's heard, uh, they probably read a book by N.T. Wright, you know, stuff like that. People that, where the, the soil has already been uh, sown. Look at what, uh, and, look, look at what, uh, what uh, Gary says. This is, he brings up a perfect, perfect verse, Second Peter one sixteen. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Right, it's just simply it's that's a wonderful verse, Second Peter first or one sixteen. That's the deal. He died and rose. You don't need to go to this quote the Zohar. Yeah. You know, no, you're no. a sinner. The Torah commit, condemns all people to sin, or, or uh, in, the, to, uh, condemns them that they are sinners. And Messiah came without sin, took your sin, and died. And rose again in vindication and justification. And it was prophesied. And it was prophesied through the temple service. Yeah, and he would give us, uh, and he gives us his resurrection life. We're partakers of his resurrection life, and it is as if we are already declared righteous on Judgment Day, even though Judgment Day hasn't happened. We walk in that new life now. I mean, it's the basic gospel message 
is pretty short. It's it's a thirty second elevator speech. You know, I I don't you don't need to quote Zohar, Midrash, Talmud to try Mishnah. to to try to to try to. I, I think here's my hunch, and I, again, I could be wrong. Like I said, I have not read the book, but I've seen enough Jewish scholars doing this kind of thing. It's a, it's I. I wonder if he wrote the book for himself. Like the book was, it's, it's for his own interaction and other people who just want to think about Messiah in turn. That's really where they're happy. They're happy thinking about the Gospels and reading rabbinic literature um, and affirming, trying to affirm both. And they kind of like doing that. Uh, that that's what I think is at the bottom of all this. Okay, maybe you're right. But at the same time, if that's the case, and we won't have time to get to it today. We'll have to do it next week. But if that is the case, okay, then I would say that Shapira has missed the mark on who exactly Yeshua is. That might be. You know, I mean, we all are growing in our knowledge of, of who Yeshua is. And so it could be that this is a snapshot of, you know, maybe it might be in five years, ten years, he'll look back and go, wow, yeah. Okay, so you you said earlier uh, you thought it sounded like Shapiro was was uh, solid on the deity. I found a clip. This was uh, in a different lecture that he gave. Listen to this. No. By the way, I wanted to tell you, I agree that I, it sounds like he's very firm on the deity of the Messiah. In fact, that's what the whole Return of the Kosher Pig is about anyway. Now it's start to make very much sense why the word Elohim, although it is a singular word, and I don't want you to think that the word Elohim is a plural word because it is a singular word with a compound ending. Sometimes join itself in the Hebrew Bible. If we are truly to look at the Hebrew Bible, okay, sometimes it joins itself to a plural verse, verb. Sometimes singular and sometimes plural. And the reason is what? Because God is one. But in this oneness, he has many manifestations. And one of the manifestations in the world is the Mashiach himself. Okay. I've used this argument before myself. However, after research, oh, the, this okay. is what is called modalism. Right. Manifestation. So yeah. it's not... Right. Uh, modalism, I'm sorry, just doesn't work. I was a modalist. I held to modalism. I... I unknowingly because I didn't fully understand what modalism was. But the idea that Yeshua is just a mode or just a manifestation of God, like the burning bush or the cloud uh, that followed or that um, led the, the Israelites by day and the fire pillar of fire by night to think that it's just, just a manifestation. Now, I, maybe it's Shapiro would expand on this for us. However, I've found other people online uh, making cases that Shapira is, in fact, a modalist. Uh, so that right there is, uh, you know, also a, a bit concerning. And perhaps not, well, yeah, uh, let's not get into uh, the ideas of modalism right now. But uh, the the fact is, is that, you know, it sounds like Shapira has not really worked through some of these, these issues in terms of... Do we know his training? No. Okay. I mean, I don't. Obviously, he he is uh, Israeli. Speaks Hebrew. You can hear his Hebrew accent in his English. So sometimes I wonder, like when he used the word manifestation, if if he's English as a second language, sometimes word choice is 
you're right. And I want he's been exposed to. You're right. I'm and wanting to give him the benefit. Of I want to. Yeah, I do too. But on the flip side, if he's put himself up as a teacher, what do we know about teachers? You get the get the, the harsher judgment, and so he's gonna, uh, you know, if he's truly part of the flock of Messiah, then he will be. You know he'll he'll receive the correction that he needs. Okay, so. let's let's set let's set this up for next week too because uh, so we haven't even gotten into the first we I have like a page and a half of notes and we've hit on the first <laughs> the first little block. I mean it's like three lines long. That's what we've hit hit on in my notes. Uh, so let's let's try to get a little bit uh, into uh, the Mishnah at least. Give us uh, now those who might not know. I would say that uh, that Rob is somewhat of an authority on uh, these kind of issues. The reason being that he studied these things in college. He teaches uh, rabbinic literature at the Torah Research Institute uh, and has written numerous pages on these subjects. So, okay, just to clarify, what I've said, I'm not a I'm not a halachist. I'm not a posek. I'm not someone who uh, is an expert in halachic minutia on this or that. So in terms of Mish- Mishnah, that's also another way someone could study those texts. For me, my I, I, I'm coming from a historian. I got a historian hat on. And I'm that's the way I was. I'm sorry. And that's to, what I meant. I'm sorry. To I, think of things. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying. Uh, but yeah, so the Mishnah, you know, we've talked about this before. Mishnah, that the, when we talk about the, it's attributed to an, the editing, the compiling and selecting and editing efforts of uh, Judah the Prince. However, my father has recently uh, made the, the case that that is unsubstantiated. Well, Judah the Prince uh, was a figure told about in the rabbinic writings that lived in the late 2nd century. And the thought is that somewhere in the, in the early 200s he would have edited this. He was in... It, it, it does seem that there was a, such a figure that he was in cahoots with Rome, Roman authority, so he was probably a wealthy Jewish uh, Torah scholar. And the story goes that he, uh, you know, he had privilege with Rome, so he was not living in conflict with Rome at all. This is while believers in Yeshua are being persecuted at this time. And he uh, compiled, he knew that there were various teachers or rabbis with different disciple groups teaching different things, and, and he took and selected from all of them and tried to create some sort of authoritative um, anthology, if you will. And so by doing so, he had to, again, just like with an editor, there's stuff that didn't make the final cut. And then that became the source curriculum, and it was in Hebrew, of both the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud. Okay, so but hey, but hey, whenever, the, whenever the Mishnah came to be... By the time of the Talmud, it had it had pretty much been received as an authoritative halakhic uh, code. Now I'm not trying would. to I'm not trying to nail you here, but uh, but my father recently has brought up the argument, and, and I think it's an interesting argument that the first attestation that we have of Judah the Prince redacting or doing anything that in uh, being attached to the writing of the Mishnah at all is in the Babylonian Talmud, which is quite a bit later. And it's, well, he's called. He's just called rab, rabbi. Rabbi says so. It's true that we, maybe you know for some maybe it could be someone else. Yeah, but the, but the point is the first the first mention of him having anything to do with the Mishnah it says that the Mishnah begins with with Judah the Prince. 
It doesn't say that he wrote it. It just says it begins with Judah the Prince. Yeah, that's true. And, and even well, even in medieval, the medieval Jews, uh, there were two different traditions. That one is that he he did codify it, but it, he never wrote anything down. That it was part of this oral learning. But in any event, wh- wherever we get the mission, wherever it comes from, the Mishnah seems to be have uh, be popular among certain Aramaic speaking Jews in Babylon. And in like up in type up in Galilee. So you're placing this in the 300s, right? Or no, the 200s. So a uh, hundred. Yeah, because by you know by the end of the 300s, we have the Jerusalem Talmud is done. By the early early 400s, we have the Jerusalem Talmud, and that's a, that's an Aramaic commentary on the the Hebrew text of the Mishnah. So the Mishnah had to exist before the Talmuds. Um, so and there's layer, you know, the Hebrew text of the Mishnah and the Aramaic text of the Gemara are interacting with one another in those texts. So we know that they're, they've, at that point they had received this traditional text as authoritative and are arguing about what it means, you know, a couple, you know, three, three to ten generations over the next several generations. So I'm sorry, say that again. So the, the uh, no, not the whole thing, but the Babylonian Talmud was, you believe, was written when? The Babylonian Talmud was uh, basically... Uh, finalized or redacted or uh, by like sixth century is pre uh, before Islam. That's before the, the, that's the Mishnah. It had pretty much been put together. And, and, the, and Jerusalem- the Mishnah is a key component. So the Jerusalem. Okay, I'm sorry. So we're talking Talmud. So when was the Mishnah? Uh, when was the Mishnah written? I'm sorry. The I- Mishnah had to exist prior to the Talmuds. Okay, we so, know that. Yeah. Okay. Because so, the Talmud is a commentary on the Mishnah, so it had to exist before that. And you're thinking that we have the final redaction of the Mishnah in the. Well, this is what they do. They say, okay, so the rabbis attribute it to Judah Hanasi. That makes sense because you know it does seem that he was wealthy. He would have been a person that would have been able to do it, and he lived, you know, at the end of the second century. So, but but that but third section. But so, in other words, it could we could slide that a little bit one way or the other, depending on whether or not Judah the Prince actually wrote it down. The point is, it's not first century, right? I mean, no matter where we place the Mishnah, it's like it's not Yeshua's time. It's not the Apostles' time. Okay, let me ask you this: Why do you think it was written? Because there was a video. Maybe I should set this question up a little bit. There was a video uh, recently that came out from a group in Jerusalem. They're trying to evangelize Jews as well. What they said was that the Mishnah was written to try to control the people. I disagree with that. Well, it's it's just like, in a way, I can understand why maybe what that person meant and agree with it in this respect. It's just no different than any other Jewish sectarian literature, like the Damascus document or the the community rule at Qumran. It's legal code, a, 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 a writing that is, is, presents itself as official legal code for were the true Israel. Yeah, but why do you think it was written down? Why do you think that... See, because I think that there was more to it than that. I think that the goal of the Mishnah was this. You had the rise of, of what was then being seen as Christianity. Uh, perhaps Messianic Judaism would be a better term for the earlier time. However, you have these Christians that are coming up. They uh, are predominantly Gentile. Uh, many of them have rejected the Torah, and there's this rift between Christians and Jews. And the Christians are now starting to persecute the Jews as well. And everyone's persecuting the Jews. And the Jews are trying desperately to preserve not only their own religion, 
and their own traditions, but they're trying to combat at the same time Christianity. And I think that that right there is one of the m- most driving forces of the, of oh, the yeah. writing and, of and the Jacob Mishnah. Jacob Neusner made that argument, you know, that, that basically we, we have to understand rabbinic literature is a post-Christian world responding in many different ways, not, all, not exclusively, because it, like with the Babylonian Talmud, they're also responding to Zoroastrianism and other things. But they're responding to the very powerful, strong claims of, of the apostolic writings. Not only that, they abandon Greek for the most part, even though there are you know, you know, 3,000 some odd Greek loanwords in rabbinic literature, they are staying clear of it. They basically have a separation of language between Jewish Greek tradition, which had all manner of te- ancient texts that Jews wrote in Greek, and those, all those Jews kind of become, they kind of leave them and they go, oh, we're going to go, we're going to go the other direction. We're going to go to Babylon and we're going to study in Aramaic and we are going to try to fortify ourselves against these people that are claiming that Yeshua is the Messiah, etc. So I, agree, I, I would agree with that. I think there, there's an effort to, to make a picture of what, tr- quote, true, quote, authentic uh, uh, Torah keeping looks like, See, and, but and to set, our, set up certain people as teachers, and at the same time exclude those other teachers who claim to have similar authority but don't, aren't keeping the rules the same. I, I think that a lot of it is is direct opposition to Christian doctrine of the time, and when I say Christian, I mean Messianic Judaism or whatever you want to say. Of you know those who had who were somewhat still in the in the synagogue, but definitely believed in the Messiah Yeshua. But when my father brought this up to me, uh, you know, what a year and a half ago or two years ago, the idea, you know, and his his view has been changing over this the past year and a half as well on on the role of the Mishnah within within the Jewish communities. But uh, when he brought that up to me, all of a sudden it was like I started to see a significant amount of texts within the Mishnah as instead of before I just saw them as halakhic rule. But all of a sudden, I started to see them as direct opposition to specific things that were going on in the believing communities. You know, the, the idea that you're not allowed to wash, you know, that a person who doesn't wash their hands is a heretic. Why would they do that? Well, Yeshua's disciples didn't wash their hands. Uh, you know, the, the whole story of, of uh, how, and, and I think this is later, but the whole story of how the, the, uh, we're supposed to keep or take oral uh, Torah as Torah, which is, you know, the voice comes from heaven and says, no, his halakha is right. You know, before that, the walls bow out in that story and the stream goes upstream and, and the the carob tree is uprooted and thrown. I think that these are all uh, specific oppositions to teachings and things that Yeshua himself did and that were being taught by the believing community. So when I look at Mishnah, and Mishnah being the earliest, possibly the Tosefta. Where do you place the Tosefta? Tosefta and Mishnah are of the same kind of genre. Some people put Tosefta earlier, like it's some of the edited stuff that was left out. It's it's hard to know for sure. So I take both of those and I look well, at Well, here's the, another one, another big one. Who did Moshe see on Mount Sinai? Well, it was on Mount Sinai where God told him, I will raise up a prophet uh, after you. Okay, and then we learned that that prophet was is, is Yeshua. Okay, we 
Okay, but what does the, the rabbinic literature say? No, that on Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai uh, God transported Moshe to the study hall of Rabbi Akiva. Akiva yeah. And it was Rabbi Akiva. And then and, and he saw Rabbi Akiva. He says, well, what a great Torah scholar. What, what's the end of his life? And then so God picks him up and shows him the end of Akiva's life where he's reciting the Shema and he's, he has iron combs of the Romans tearing flesh from his skin as he dies. It gives his soul up. That's what the rabbis say that Moshe saw on Mount Sinai was the martyrdom of Rabbi Kiva. And I'm like, okay, so yeah, there, there are many stories like that that are earlier stories that the rabbis take and make their own. Like it's a story that's not originally rabbinic. They take it, spin it, make it their own, and what it does, it fortifies and kind of inoculates, I suppose, the, their disciples against the gospel. Yeah, and, and, and really uh, solidifies their theology the way that they want their theology. Right, right. So, and, and so to me, the idea that Messianics are, ta- are taking this passage in Matthew 23 of they sit in the seat of Moses, then attributing that in some way to a later work. So in my opinion, we have the Apostolic Scriptures, which we know came first. We know that the Apostolic Scriptures came first. The question is, is the Mishnah a response to the Apostolic Scriptures? I say absolutely. I say there's no doubt that it is a, a response but to the But we are not calling for, unless somebody mishears us, you know, because someone would say, oh, you listen to, these, listen to this anti-Semitic rant. <laughs> yeah. We're not calling for burning of any books. Of course not. Or We're the, not calling or, for the yeah. destruction of rabbinic literature. We're not calling for any anything like that. That's 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 in the back of my mind when when you start talking critical about something, that someone can take that and spin it into that extreme viewpoint. Yeah, but and and, and isn't it interesting that we don't have one critical uh, edition of the Mishnah or the Talmuds? How many critical editions are there of the of the? Well, that's what that's what. Uh, Adin Steinsholz tried to do. He tried to approach giving uh, footnotes in his. Well, he but then he got kind of labeled a heretic because he had the audacity to print his own Talmud with his own commentary in it. You know what I mean? So it's like, what do you do? So, but th- this is my point: is that you have these teachers, and I'm not trying to pick on Itzhak Shapira. There are others as well, certainly others, and we could name names if we wanted to. There are certainly others who are trying to teach the exact same thing. And there are many, many, many within the Messianic movement who are now saying, and this includes the teachers over at FFOZ now, okay? Uh, Franck and, and all those guys are, are teaching that Sola Scriptura is not a valid form of, of theology, that we have to have these external rabbinic literature to be able to interpret our Bibles. What they're doing, go, go for it. Well, I was thinking, no, they, they, they just have their categories mixed up. We have the scriptures, sola scriptura, and then everything else is just what we have in the world. We just have the text. We have Qumran. We have Josephus. We have Philo. We have what the later rabbi said. And all that stuff's on the table from a his- for us to understand history and the development of ideas. Exactly. But, it's, but, but that's it. We but, have what's in the world, and then we have the scriptures, which are holy. And there's, those aren't to be conflicted. We, we can't pretend those are the same 
types of things. But the point for me is, is that the Mishnah, we have to take the Mishnah in its historical context. And in my opinion, the historical context of the Mishnah and the Talmud is a response to the apostolic writings and the people of the way, the people of faith in Yeshua. It's responding to that and it's trying to discount them. And if we don't understand that and we just try to see it as, you know, the Torah explained what happens. We totally miss the point, and we totally miss what's going on in a lot of these texts. That's a problem. Okay, so I think that uh, for now we'll we'll stop. We need to pick this up, though, when we come back, because we'll come back next week and talk more about this. Because, believe it or not, uh, there's reasons why I, I earlier I made a very bold, bold statement, and I think maybe I should clarify a little bit. I said that I think that if this uh, this book, uh, Return of the Kosher Pig, was written from a personal standpoint, or, you know, trying to, uh, from Shapiro trying to uh, lay out his own personal views and whatnot, that I think that he's missed who Yeshua really is. There's reasons I think that. Uh, next week, we're going to look at some of those reasons and some of the things that I think are extremely, uh, I, is dangerous the right word? It's not even dangerous. Uh, and I don't, maybe heretical is the right view or the right word. Extremely heretical to even write down. Uh, but I don't think that uh, Shapira is doing it uh, maliciously or I don't even think that he has really grasped what the implications of, of some of the things that he's written uh, has been. Uh, that's my opinion. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. It'd be interesting to find people who are fans of the book that maybe don't have uh, any much knowledge of him personally, but have just read the book and have been influenced, and to have them, you know, give what what are your takeaways? I'd be interested to see what people take away from that book. I think that this book is a lot bigger of an influence within the Messianic movement than a lot of people give it credit. He is selling a lot of these books. He was sold, you know, he was was personally sold out of the books. People were having to buy it the other day from Amazon. And it's been out for a long time. Anyway, all right. Well, uh, it's been fun. I hope that everyone has enjoyed, uh, you know, the conversation. And we've, I don't know, we kind of took it a little bit slower today. But not only did we take it slower, it's just, uh, you know, maybe we got off on some rabbit trails. I don't know. Anyway, let us know what you think of the conversation. Write us an email. Heg at TorahResource.com. Our Van Hoff at TorahResource.com. And uh, I, I hope that people don't think that we're picking too much on one specific person. However, it's Akshapira. He did write a book. <laughs> he wrote a oh, book. Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah. So anyway, uh, what we're trying to do here, though, is uh, we're trying to illuminate who the Messiah truly is from the scriptures, not from other sources. We're trying to illuminate that he is our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. <laughs>